I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about why your business doesn't resonate with customers. This is at the root of most failed startups. I hear about it constantly. Our customers don't get our value, or I can't get through to them, or our marketing doesn't work, or our cold emails get zero responses, or we can't grow. It certainly might just be that no one wants what you're building, and in that case, nothing's going to help you. But way too frequently, I see businesses that could help customers but are struggling and sputtering, all because of a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is what we're going to talk about today, and here it is. Your customers only understand one language, but you're talking to them in another. Customers are fluent in problem. Most entrepreneurs only speak solution. I first saw this idea years ago crystallized in a book called The Brain Audit, which I'll link to in the show notes. Once you're aware of this misunderstanding, you'll see it everywhere. You'll be amazed at how many businesses are wasting so much time speaking to nobody. Customers that need help and businesses that could help them are flying past each other like planes at LaGuardia, all because they don't speak the same language. At this point, I'm convinced that if entrepreneurs just learned how to speak problem, the startup failure rate would drop like 40%. But it's hard and counterintuitive and oddly emotional, which we'll get to, so they don't. Today, we'll fix it, or try to. To kick things off, here's what it looks like in real life. There's a farm stand in my town that's got a ton of different types of apples out this time of year. They've got names like Honeycrisp and McCoon and Gala and Empire, and they've each got their own nameplate that has a level from 1 to 5 for sweetness, crispness, and tartness. So a McCoon might be a 3 out of 5 on the sweet scale, a 4 out of 5 on the crisp scale, and a 1 out of 5 on the tart scale. I watch people pour over these ratings like they're deciphering the Zapruder film. Is 4 out of 5 too sweet? If it's also a 4 out of 5 tart, do those two cancel each other out? Do I like crisp? What is crisp? Is that a flavor or just the feeling you get when you bite into an apple? You can see the anguish on people's faces as they try to make a decision. It's like Paul Hollywood trying to decide between Rahul, Ruby, and Kim Joy on season 9 of The Great British Bake Off, which is what my wife and I have been watching at 2am because the little guy has decided he has no interest in sleeping from 1 to 3 every night anymore. He's teething or eating too much or eating too little or possibly just a baby. No way to tell because, much like customers and entrepreneurs, we don't speak the same language. See, I tied it all together. Although he did just learn his first word, which is dada, and I'll tell you what, it is a real get-out-of-jail-free card. Impossible to be upset, even at 2am when a tiny version of yourself stops crying for 5 seconds to smile at you with his 6 teeth and say, dada? But we're off track. Back to the anguished customers looking at apples that have more scores than figure skaters pulling their hair out until they get to the last crate. At the end of the display, there's an apple, the Granny Smith, which doesn't have the sweet, crisp, and tart scale. It just has a sign that says, quote, Stop debating. These are the best apples for an apple pie. When customers see this sign, their shoulders drop, the stress melts away, and they grab a bag of Granny Smiths. I was there the other day, and as I checked out Bag of Granny Smiths in hand, I asked the owner what the best seller was. 
He pointed at my apples and said, Granny Smith's by far, not even close. We had to plant a whole new field of them, he said. People can't get enough. They love them. But he's wrong. It's got nothing to do with the taste. It's just that the nameplate on top of the crate of Granny Smith's is written in the only language customers speak. Problem. I'm sure a good chunk of these people had walked up to the Apple display with plans of making a pie. So their question, their problem, was which of these apples makes the best pie? The nameplate addressed it. The rest of the apples had nameplates that described the solution. Features of the apples. Crisp, sweet, tart. This isn't helpful. It's a different language. Customers don't speak it. My guess is that even people who didn't come in planning on making an apple pie saw the problem messaging for Granny Smith's and decided, hey, I'll make an apple pie and I'll use these apples solely because we're drawn to problem language. It's a language we understand. It's like when you go overseas and a menu's entirely in a different language, but you sort of recognize one word. Maybe it's pizza, but spelled P-I-Z-E. And even if you didn't want pizza, you get it because it's in your language. For entrepreneurs, solution speak is an epidemic. We're describing what we've made instead of describing the problem we'll solve, and customers can't bridge the gap. They don't speak that language. We're pitching to them in Latin. And worst of all, we're doing it when they've only got a few seconds to make a decision. But not you. You'll do it right. And this episode will help. We're going to do a little live experiment today on the pod. We'll test out problem versus solution language. There's an idea we've been pitched at Tacklebox roughly 700 times the past month or two. So today, We'll talk through it and build two landing pages for it, one with problem language and one with solution language. We'll spend a hundred bucks on ads and we'll see which converts at a higher rate. This will be fun. Let's get to the idea, then we'll do some jazz, then we'll run some tests and we'll get you out of here on time. Here is an email from someone in Tacklebox describing the idea we're going to test. Hey Brian, love the pod. Editor's note, after last week's episode, someone wrote an email that said, quote, Eddie from Ronkonkoma here. Love the pod. First time, long time. And I got a full belly laugh out of it. I'm sending them an idea to start a pat, which we have now, but only for people that email with funny inside pod jokes. Back to the email. My idea is to leverage all of the new tools OpenAI has released to build a personal chatbot that'll help people get out of debt. The debt stats in the U.S. will probably shock you. U.S. credit card balances rose to a record high of $1.08 trillion in the third quarter of this year, up $48 billion from the previous quarter and $154 billion from a year ago, the largest year-over-year increase on record. Household debt increased 1.3% to $17.29 trillion, and the rate of households becoming delinquent or entering serious delinquency on their credit cards was the highest since 2011. There's an opportunity to use AI tools to build personal financial assistance. Smart AIs that can tell you when to pay what bill, help you cancel unused services, search for cheaper rates for services you need, search for cheaper loans, and probably way more. What do you think? I've gotten similar emails around AI tools that'll help people with mortgage payments and student loans as well. The idea of an AI to help people get out of debt is a popular one, and maybe a good one. but only if you speak to customers in the right language, which we'll try after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. 
Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. Why you won't use problem language even after listening to this podcast. Before we get to the AI for debt idea, I'm going to tell you why you won't take the advice from today's pod. There are a few reasons. If you're aware of them, maybe you can avoid them. First, because 99% of the time, everyone is speaking solution. When someone asks you about your startup, they say, what are you building? When they're trying to dig in and ask tough questions about that startup, they'll say, why is it different? They expect you to describe features after each question. In the email before the jazz, the guy was falling over himself to list all the capabilities of AI. It's natural. 99% of pitches I get focus on the solution because solution is what the entrepreneur has created. It's what we judge them on. It's how we talk about startups. So it's how we think of our business and then how we message it to customers. Problem language, on the other hand, requires you to get into the mind of your customer to describe the problem as they see it, not as you'll solve it. This is hard. It requires you to understand the moment your customer feels the pain. It is so much easier to broadly say, quote, lots of people have debt and an AI could help them pay it off faster than to learn about a specific problem for a specific customer and say, quote, you've heard about refinancing student loans, but aren't sure if you're a candidate for it. That feels a lot smaller, too. Worst of all, problem language forces you to pick a specific customer in a specific problem, which makes it feel like you're leaving everyone else out. But since customers only speak problem, messaging with a problem, even the most specific one, will be far more effective as a conversion tool than any type of solution messaging. Talking to one person will always attract more customers than talking to a million, as counterintuitive as that feels. Remember the apples. Granny Smiths sell way more than all the other apples combined, to the point that this guy had to plant a whole new freaking field of Granny Smith apple trees, not because everyone wants pie, but because everyone understood the language and they reacted to it. Also remember, people are always thinking about themselves, and the problem is about them. They own it. The solution is about you. They'll choose themselves over you 100 out of 100 times, and you've got to meet them there. I've found that pounding examples tends to work well for this, so here's another. This past Friday, I was in New York City for a chiropractor appointment, and beforehand I walked for about 60 city blocks. I was focused on the signs in the windows and the sandwich boards on the sidewalks trying to coax people off the street into their store. There were coffee shops that said things like damn fine coffee and ads for the best breakfast burrito in New York City and mentions of soft fleeces and gluten-free cupcakes and Pilates that would shape your core. I watched people walk by these sandwich boards and summarily ignore them, like they were in a different language, because they were. Easily 95% of these sandwich boards talked about the features of the business, but every once in a while, I'd find a sandwich board written in problem language, and I'd plant myself nearby to watch and see how people responded to it. On a cobblestone street in Soho, mixed in with boutiques and designer shops, I saw a sandwich board that said, quote, looking for last-minute gifts that'll fit into your suitcase before your flight? This is problem language, and it grabbed people. Groups of tourists slowed and stopped. People nudged each other and giggled as if the sign was reading their minds. As one group walked up to the sign, a guy threw up his hands and said, finally, and the whole group walked in. 
The guy had probably walked by 200 stores in the past 15 minutes where he could have bought something for a loved one that fit in his suitcase, but he read the sign and acted like he'd found an oasis in the desert. And he had. Solution language is silent. Problem language is loud. I went inside the shop and the problem messaging continued. There were small display tables with goods on them, and each had a sign that read something like, quote, your mom hates cheap knickknacks, but she'll still want a souvenir. And, quote, you don't want a plastic Statue of Liberty on your desk, but you'd like something small and New York-y so your coworkers will know that you travel. Problem, problem, problem. And the store was packed. Think about how hard it was for this store to stay loyal to that problem messaging. They're in Soho. They're rubbing elbows with designer brands. They'd clearly spent a ton of time on curation. The store's layout and product mix was immaculate. They could have talked about their ceramics or their brands or their selection, but instead they talked about a customer with a specific problem. This problem drove their product mix. Everything was small, but that didn't mean cheap. I watched a woman buy a small curved wooden sushi tray with a tiny carving of the classic New York City to-go coffee cup on it, for $385. A good problem shapes every aspect of your company, which is great. It becomes your North Star and helps you make otherwise impossible decisions. It takes an enormous amount of discipline to message problem first at the start, but it pays. Problem language is about recognizing that before you've got a well-known brand, what you need is trust. And the fastest way to build trust is to speak to a customer about a problem they didn't think anyone knew they had, at least not in the level of detail that you were going to describe it. If you do this part well, the solution just becomes the second half of that sentence, the far less important half. You describe the problem in detail, build trust, then say, I can help. How you help is usually irrelevant, and that's what entrepreneurs miss. We think the how matters, but it doesn't. If you said, quote, hey, Brian, I know you're six foot five and lanky, and it's hard for you to buy shirts that have long arms and torsos that aren't blousey. You've got me. I don't care what your product is. I'll probably try it because you understand a problem I have that other people don't pay attention to. The trust is earned from you seeing me more clearly than other companies vying for my attention. The problem language does all the heavy lifting. And that's not to say that you never talk about the solution because you do. It just comes after the problem. It's a sequencing issue. Grab people with a problem, then tell them about your solution, but the solution is secondary. Back to the differentiator idea. When someone asks you what your differentiator is, it's always natural to describe a feature, but the best differentiator is a specific problem for a specific customer. It's hard because that's not about you, and it'll make you feel insecure because the messaging will be about something that already exists, the problem, rather than the new thing you're making, the solution. But that's okay. It's an opportunity because nearly everyone else misses this, and you won't. Customers speak problem, speak their language, and they'll listen. AI for debt. Back to our finance idea. AI for helping people pay down their debt. The way you speak problem is to first pick a customer. That is where the problem is going to come from. By far, the best way to do this is to literally pick someone, a real someone, who represents what you think is your best possible opportunity as an early customer. In the case of AI for Debt, we're going to pick Dave, who's a good friend of the person who emailed us earlier. Dave isn't his actual name, but I've met tons of Daves, and I bet you have too. Dave's financial life has gotten a little bit out of control. 
He's in about $5,000 of credit card debt, but he might be in more. He isn't sure because he's got a few cards and it's tough to figure it out. He's also got student loans and he's got rent and he's got a bunch of subscription services too. The kicker for Dave though, is that his income is chunky. He's a freelancer. So all the tools like you need a budget or mint are wonky for him because when they say, what's your monthly income, he can't answer because it fluctuates a ton. When I asked our founder what he thought Dave's core problem was, he paused and replied, well, he's in debt. Ask a dumb question, get a dumb answer, I guess. When I pushed back a bit, I got to a more unique problem. Dave couldn't build a plan to attack his debt because he had no transparency into his financial situation. Okay, we're getting closer. I sent our founder to run another interview with Dave, and he learned that multiple times he'd set out to do a month where he tracked everything, but failed a few days in. Another couple of times he tried to do a month-long cleanse where he'd spend zero money aside for necessities and $15 a day for food, but again, he lost steam a couple days in. It always came back to the transparency thing. He just never knew what was happening because his income was so chunky, so he could never make or stick to a plan. Our founder's idea was an AI chatbot that did three things. First, texted him each day to tell him exactly where he was financially at that moment. Second, build a budget that if he followed would get him out of debt by a certain date. And third, send emails to all of his providers from Netflix to credit cards to negotiate, to get a lower interest rate on his credit cards, to get Netflix and other subscriptions cheaper. His point was that if you say you're going to cancel most of these subscription services, they offer you a better rate to get you to stay. So why not do that with everything? He built a landing page, and that landing page was solution-based. It wasn't bad, objectively. Here's the copy. The H1 said, quote, an AI financial co-pilot to get you out of debt. The H2, the description below it, said, quote, our AI will help you get transparency on what you owe, build a plan to pay down your debt, and lower subscription payments and interest rates, all without you needing to lift a finger. Not bad. My landing page would be problem-based with a very brief solution following. I purposefully just took words he'd told me on our call and didn't try to shorten them or make them punchy or clever or anything. Just a mass of ugly problem text. A true test. My H1 said, quote, You're a freelancer and you're in debt. Your income is choppy, so mint and you need a budget don't work. You never know how much you owe, so you can't use tools to build a plan to pay it off. You're stressed as hell and you're stuck. The H2 said, we built you a tool that'll help. It's got AI, but that is not important. Each website had the same call to action, a big button that said, put in your email to learn more. Both landing pages had the same design aside from the text. We popped both into a few Reddit threads on debt and promoted tweets and Instagram ads with the same messaging. Which do you think did better? Now, this would have been super awkward if the solution messaging beat the problem messaging. But it didn't. Not even close. 38 signups for problem language, zero for solution language. When people don't understand what you're saying, they don't respond to it. The end. This is everywhere. Solution language is everywhere. I just opened up my inbox to cruise through the cold emails. The first one starts, quote, I wanted to reach out as we're launching a new initiative which will help you showcase and amplify Tacklebox. Solution language. 
in one ear, out the other. Problem language might have been something like, quote, you don't have a dedicated marketing person on staff, which makes creating new campaigns tough. Not great, but I'd listen to another sentence. Next email. A co-working space. The first line reads, quote, split office space, save money, and meet cool people. Solution language. Delete. Problem might have been something like, quote, your WeWork membership looks less reliable by the day, but where will you get flexible month-to-month pricing with quiet rooms for coaching calls if you leave? Next email. Whoa, a problem email. Quote, your pants won't fit after Thanksgiving, but you can't wear sweats to grandma's. This email is for corduroy pants that apparently feel like sweatpants. And now we are talking. Can't you see how different that is? We understand problems so we can decide if it's a problem we have or not, and we can decide to react to it. The next email, also from a clothing company, says, quote, it's Sherpa season. And what the hell does that mean? Delete. When you're writing cold emails, when you're making a website, when you're trying to get someone to invest or trying to convince anyone of anything, start with their problem and with your solution. The more specific you are about their problem, the more trust you'll build, the less you'll have to say about your solution to get a commitment. The problem does all the heavy lifting. No one hears you if you aren't speaking their language, so speak it. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and can be working together by the weekend. Have a great week. 